All right, well, welcome back to the Corinthians seminar that we've been working on. And this is sort of a special uh, teaching, and it's going to be just on speaking in tongues. And I thought this would be helpful to do a teaching that tries to focus solely on speaking in tongues. Um, you know, my goal in this teaching is to cover basically every verse in the Bible that talks about speaking in tongues. And we're also going to look at a few verses that may or may not be about speaking in tongues. We're going to look at uh, the verses that specify details about tongues and the benefits of tongues. We're going to look at verses that we've been taught are about tongues but aren't. We're going to go into that. Uh, we're also going to talk about... Um, there's gonna be, at the end, we're going to do this uh, questions and answers session... I've reached out to people in our congregation um, in this initial batch of people listening to these teachings uh, for their questions about, about tongues as well. So I've tried to fill out as much content as possible that's relevant to uh, what we're interested in for, for right now, for the conversation that we're having in Compass. And so, um, you know, maybe there will be more to be said in in future times as we work this subject together, but it really is, I'm, I'm really trying my hardest to make this as comprehensive as possible. Now, one thing that I'm going to say in with respect to that is, is that if you haven't listened yet to the teachings that I've done on 1 Corinthians 14, please go and listen to them first, okay? Please go and listen to them first. Uh, we will read those verses in this teaching, but we're not going to go into nearly the depth and detail that we went in with, uh, with respect to that stuff, uh, because it's already been done. It's already been done in the first Corinthians 14 teachings. And so I'm just going to hit the high notes along the way. Um, and then if you want more detailed analysis, please go listen to the teachings on first Corinthians 14. Uh, another aspect of the question answer period is that I'm going to address a lot of different things that people, like I said, have specifically asked me, but I'm also going to ask and answer questions that come from people who come from a more cessationist background. Um, and so a cessationist, I'm going to use that term cessationist a few times. A cessationist is someone who believes that tongue specifically, usually it's tongue specifically, or sometimes it's all the gifts of the spirit, all the manifestations of the spirit generally have ceased. That's a cessationist. Either they're a tongue cessationist or they're a general cessationist. I'm going to sort of lump that all together into one term because we're just, again, we're just talking about tongues. So we'll talk about the cessationist arguments for tongues and the reasons that I reject them in the Q&A. Um, if you want a more full, uh, positive treatment for that case, I'm not going to give it to you in this teaching, uh, but you could look to the... Uh, one of the places you could look is the Focus on the Kingdom YouTube page. It's the YouTube page uh, run by uh, Carlos Xavier, who is Sir Anthony Buzzard's uh, son-in-law. Uh, the video, the long-form video, they did a panel discussion, is called Speaking in Tongues with Anthony Buzzard, Ken LaProd, Greg Dibble. That's D-E-U-B-L-E -E for Dibble. So that, that, the long-form video is like two hours long. So if you want to understand some of the questions and some of the answers that how they would answer these questions, some of these questions, 
um, you know, get the full perspective from that if you'd like. Um, I'm going to handle at least a couple of the points in their, of theirs in the Q&A section. It's certainly not going to be an exhaustive analysis of the cessationist argument by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just going to hit a couple of the high points. Um, so that being said, we're actually going to get into the teaching now. All right, so the first class of verses we're going to talk about are verses that mention speaking in tongues, but then just don't give us any further explanation. Uh, the first of those is in Mark chapter 16. And it's in the context of the Great Commission. In verse 17, it says, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. And then in verse 18, it talks about serpents and drinking poison and laying hands on the sick and all, the, all these other things. So, tongues is just mentioned here. Um, now, I do want to caveat this, um, that this ending in Mark, it's called the second ending in Mark. I don't, again, don't want to be dogmatic on this point, but many of the early manuscripts do not include this, what's called the second ending, from Mark 9 all the way to the end of the, the book, uh, Mark, Mark 16, verse 9 to the end of the book. So... Um, this likely did not appear in the earliest Bibles, just to, just to be clear about that. Um, so I don't think it's a huge deal one way or the other. It just mentions tongues. It doesn't, you know, there's no real like theological significance um, to the tongues argument one way or the other in this text. Okay, I'm just pointing out that maybe this should be in our Bible, maybe it shouldn't be. I think that's specifically helpful just as an aside when we get to like verse 18 about picking up serpents and drinking deadly poison and that sort of stuff um, that, you know, maybe that wasn't in the original uh, in Mark. Okay, we don't have to worry about that too much, but most of the other facts here in Mark 16 verses 9 to 20, most of the facts laid out are corroborated other, other places in scripture. And essentially like the only thing that isn't is, is this, some of the stuff that's in verse 18. So, again, I don't see it as a big thing one way or the other, especially with relation to tongues, but just wanted to point all that stuff out. Uh, the next verse that sort of just mentions tongues, it doesn't really give any further explanation, is in Acts chapter 19. It's the record of Paul going to Ephesus, and he's re, um, meeting with these. It's actually sort of a really weird section. I'm unclear exactly how to describe all of it because it's like they're disciples, but they're baptized into John's baptism, and then he asks them if they've received the Spirit, and they haven't, they didn't even know that there was a Spirit, and so then he, like, preaches to them that, like, you, hey, look, John's disciples should really be Jesus' disciples, and then they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, that's verse 5, and then verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So, you know, several times it's mentioned in the book of Acts when someone um, receives the new birth um, that one of the first evidences is speaking in tongues. Uh, what's unique, I think, about this particular example is that it also mentions prophecy, which seems to be a more mature manifestation or gift, which is sort of interesting. It mentions them both. So they, they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. It's sort of neat. But again, it just mentions speaking in tongues. It doesn't really tell us 
much about what speaking in tongues is. Uh, another grouping of verses that does sort of the same thing is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, the first one is verse 10, where it's just listing out uh, the different manifestations of the Spirit. And in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 10, it says, To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. Uh, the unique thing about this particular occurrence is that word uh, kinds, uh, genos, genos glossa, various kinds of tongues. It's not just the general phrase for speaking in tongues. So that's a little unique. That doesn't really occur many other places, if at all. Um, and then it's also mentioned in the list in verses 28 and 30. We're not going to read those verses, but it mentions it again in a couple other lists at the bottom of the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So um, those are verses that just, they just mention that speaking in tongues is a thing, that it exists, but there's really not any further content besides that. So now I want to transition to verses that give more detail about speaking in tongues and describe really what it is. Um, so we could think of this as description of what it is. We could call it benefits. Some of these are certainly uh, benefits as well of tongues. And the first um, example is the first time it happened, which is in Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to pick up in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language or dialect. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So here in this section... Uh, the, the 12 were filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in tongues, and the people who were there were from all other regions uh, around the Mediterranean Sea. They spoke all different local dialects. Uh, they spoke different languages. All of them probably spoke Greek. Many of them might have spoken, you know, some sort of Syriac, Aramaic, Hebrew kind of language, uh, depending on what you believe was going around at the time. You know, many of them would have spoken that language as well, uh, Aramaic or, or whatever derivative you want to call it was the local language of the time that would have been like the Jewish language. So they would have they would have spoken Greek, which was like the the, nas the national language of the empire. Uh, many of them would have spoken Aramaic or some derivative of that. And then they also would have had a local dialect. And so what's happening is the 12 apostles who many of them would have known both Aramaic and Greek. Um, we're speaking in these other languages, these other local dialects from all these other regions around the Mediterranean Sea where people had come to uh, celebrate Pentecost. And so that certainly is a miraculous event. We're going to get to this more in the Q&A period, but, uh, but essentially all of the, all of the scholars um, who are not cessationist, all the scholars who are more in line with the continuationist kind of charismatic approach 
um, Max Turner, Gordon Fee, Sam Storms, you know, those types of people, they all agree that this is like a unique experience. This is not generally what speaking in tongues is. Um, it's not generally used for outreach. This is the only time in the Bible where it specifically mentions using tongues in some sort of missionary context where it was like a sign of something supernatural happening for that specific group of people hearing their own languages. As far as we can tell, this is the only time in the Bible where that happens. Um, and so that is, this is entirely unique. Uh, the part that isn't unique is what we see in verse 11, which is we hear them, verse 11b, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So what this is, is this is uh, praise. This is praise being directed to God through the Spirit operating in the apostles. And that's going to be helpful for us as we move along. Another time when this happened in Acts is Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter with Cornelius and his household. This is the first time that a pure Gentile, you know, they'd, they'd reached out to the Samaritans and now they're reaching out to actual Gentiles. Cornelius was an Italian. He was a Roman. Uh, so in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out e even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then it goes on. So um, here again, we find that speaking in tongues is related to praising or extolling, as it says in the ESV, God. It's praise to God. Um, and this was similar to what they experienced on the day of Pentecost. Uh, they were born again. They received the Holy Spirit. Uh, we can also reference Acts chapter 11, when Peter is reporting this back to the church. In verse, 10, verse 15, it says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. So again, Peter is, is saying like, this is like the Gentile Pentecost. This is like the Gentile Pentecost. They spoke in tongues. They were praising God. Um, but here it's unclear. I mean, the people, Peter and his uh, fellow Christians, Jewish Christians who had come with him, they knew that they were speaking in tongues. They knew it was a legitimate outpouring. It does not say that Peter and the others knew the languages. That's something that sometimes cessationists will say, well, like clearly they were speaking languages that Peter and these other guys knew, but Peter was uneducated. He likely only knew uh, Greek and whatever local, you know, Jewish dialect you want to say it was, Aramaic or Hebrew or some sort of, you know, ancient uh, similar language like that. So, you know, if he only knows Aramaic and Greek and these Gentiles also know, likely, Aramaic and Greek, uh, then if they were speaking in tongues and it was supernatural, then it had to be a different language. And it likely was a language that Peter and the other guys didn't know. These were uneducated men. So again, I don't think the cessationist argument works here. I think they just could tell spiritually that they, what they were doing was legitimate speaking in tongues. So anyway, for what that's worth, that's Acts chapter 10. Uh, then the rest, of, the rest of the verses in the entire Bible, cover to cover, that give us explicit details about what speaking in tongues do, 
The rest of the verses are found in 1 Corinthians. I just find that remarkable. So we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, a lot of these verses we went through in our teaching on 1 Corinthians 13 and on 1 Corinthians 14. So I'm just going to go through them pretty quickly and just very quickly sum up what we've learned about them so far. So in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So, you know, Paul is using hyperbolic language here uh, throughout this passage. We're going to evaluate more fully if we think that this is hyperbole, whether it's the tongues of men or of angels. Um, both Sam Storms and Gordon Fee tend to leave the option open that this could be tongues of men and angels. And I think that there's a good reason for that. We'll, we'll address that further in the Q&A at the end. Um, but anyway, so we learn a little bit more about speaking in tongues there. And then the rest of what we learn about tongues is in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, verse 2 says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So speaking in tongues, again, is speaking to God. And uh, no one else in the room may understand him. And we'll find out later in 1 Corinthians 14 that the mind is unfruitful, meaning that the person who's speaking in a tongue does not know the language. Uh, let's skip to verse 4. It says, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So the main point from these three verses is that speaking in tongues builds up yourself we're going to find out later in verse Corinthians 14 that the mind is unfruitful. That, so there is some sort of spiritual building up that takes place with tongues. Uh, that seems to be unique to tongues as far as we understand in Scripture. And that Paul, uh, that speaking in tongues is a good thing. Verse 5, Paul desires people speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. All right. Uh, the next verse I want to go to is verse 9. Again, we're going to be skipping around. And if you want to hear more about all these verses in between, again, go back to the 1 Corinthians 14 teachings. Um, in, in verse 9, it says, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know it is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. So this gives us some detail that tongues are unintelligible to the average person in the room. Uh, there may be instances, and I've heard of instances, where it's been intelligible language to someone in the room. But certainly it's not a known language to the person speaking, and it's generally not known to the audience. Verse 13 says, Therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Verse 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what this tells us is that the person speaking the tongue uh, does not know the language. Otherwise, why would you have to pray to interpret the tongue? It just doesn't make any sense. So this is... A language that someone, that's the person speaking in tongues, does not know the language. In a meeting, they should interpret it, so they should pray to have the ability to interpret their tongue. And then the, verse 14 adds that the, uh, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Um, in the next couple of verses, he talks about praying in the spirit, praying with the mind, singing praise of the spirit, singing praise with the mind. Um, it's talked about, it's talked about like it's Thanksgiving, giving thanks well enough. That's verse 17. So all these verses are talking about different benefits of tongues and different things about it, but it's always, uh, praising well, praying well, giving thanks well enough. This is all prayer and praise language being used. Uh, Paul again has a high view of tongues. 
He thanks God, verse 18, that he speaks in tongues more than all of you. In verse 19, though, in the church, he'd rather speak five words with his mind in order to instruct others other uh, than 10,000 words in a tongue. So he is not a big tongues doer in a meeting, a tongue speaker in a meeting. He does, uh, does plenty in his private prayer life. In fact, he boasts that he does more than everyone uh, in his private prayer life. But in the church, he doesn't really do it because he'd rather instruct people in their own language. He'd rather uh, share with them things that can teach them and bring them to Christ uh, with, his, um, with his mind. Uh, then going on to verse 21 through 23, uh, we saw this in the 1 Corinthians 14 section. The law is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners while I speak to his people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not to, uh, for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? So as we saw in the section on 1 Corinthians 14, this is just saying that uh, tongues are strange to outsiders, especially when uninterpreted. Um, and so it will be a negative sign to people that what you're doing is not good, is not helpful, is not, uh, you know, they already have obstacles. The gospel already provides obstacles for people. Uh, we, we serve a crucified king, is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1. And so um, we don't need to be adding barriers to the gospel, is, is Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 14. And so uh, that's why eventually we're going to read the next couple of verses, verses 26 and 27. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a, a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two or at the most three in each in turn and let someone interpret. So because Paul has already said specifically that he does not really speak in tongues himself. He does not do that in a meeting. He just generally doesn't think that it's the most profitable way to do things. And so he says, if, if you're going to do it in a meeting, if, doesn't have to happen, but if it does happen, there should only be two or at the most three each in turn and someone's got to interpret. Uh, what we've what we've talked about about that is is that um, in a church in a church meeting, you know, you don't you could have between zero and three people speak in tongues. Zero and three. It says if. Um, another thing that this points out is that the person's in complete control. We talked about that. Each in turn means everyone's in control. It's not ecstatic. It's not a burst of something that's spirit so spirit led that you can't control it or contain it. It's in turn. And that they're always in a meeting must be interpretation. We talked about how the grammar here and elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 14 suggests that it could be you who interpret. It could be someone else who interprets. I think the safest way moving forward practically is just to insist on the same person interpreting. Uh, although I think it's grammatically open for uh, a separate interpreter. All right. Final verse. Um, Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So again, it refers to tongues as um, prayer, as talking to God or as a personal kind of thing. And then, of course, you know, we've got a couple of general things that are said about, you know, God's got a confusion, not a peace. Let all things be done decently in order. You know, that, that sort of tax on. We've already seen that with tongues, specifically in verse 27, that each in turn means that the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. 
verse 32, we see that it's about peace. Verse 33, we see that it's about decent and order. Verse 40, just by looking at the each in turn from verse 27. So uh, all that, that is everything that the Bible has to say that's very clearly about tongues. Very clearly about tongues and about the benefits and about the characteristics of tongues. That's it. That's what the Bible says about it. Uh, there's another class of verses. There are three different sections. And these sections, I have, I have varying degrees of confidence, are talking about tongues. Um, and so I want to go to um, the one that I have the greatest confidence in first. And then I think the other two are sort of on the same level. Um, so what this is doing is this is leveraging, leveraging the concept that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14, this language of praying and praising in the Spirit or with the Spirit. And in Jude chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 1 verse 20, it says, But you, beloved, building up your, yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's verse 21. So in verse 20, it talks about building up your, yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So that phrase, praying in the Holy Spirit, seems to me to be a reference to tongues. And the fact that Jude says that that builds yourselves up in your most holy faith, uh, that, that actually... Uh, accords pretty well with what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. So I, I tend to think, even though Jude 20 doesn't specifically use the word glossa, tongues, I, I still tend to think that Jude 20 is talking about tongues. Um, I give it a pretty pretty high confidence that that's what it's talking about. But again, it's only giving us the additional information that we already have in 1 Corinthians 14, 4. It's not, it's not giving us really any new content or things to understand about tongues. It's sort of confirming what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 4. The other two, I'm going to say, are more controversial. I think the more confident, the slightly, I'd say if I have to edge one out and say one slightly more about tongues, I'm going to say Ephesians 6. That's where we'll go next. We'll go to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6 uh, is talking about the whole armor of God, spiritual warfare. And then verse 18 says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So this whole idea of praying at all times in the Spirit. So if you get rid of that at all times, sort of pull that out, you get praying in the Spirit. So, and, and the Greek, you know, the Greek is interesting uh, where it places the, in the spirit, there's all sorts of prayer being done here. Verse 18, again, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Uh, so I tend to think what Paul has in mind here is all different types of prayer, all different types of prayer. Um, and Praying in the Spirit, again, that seems to be what Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 14. And so I tend to think, you know, this is likely what it's talking about here. 
uh, it's not limited to tongues. I just want to be very clear about this. This is, if Ephesians 6.18 is talking about tongues at all, what it's talking about is tongues in the larger context of a whole arsenal of different types of prayer. Okay, so you have, you know, praying in the spirit, you have praying with your understanding. You've got supplication in the spirit, you've got supplication with your understanding. You've got all these different types and ways to pray, and the prayer in the spirit would be part of that, not the whole thing. So in other words, what I'm saying is speaking in tongues is po possibly part of what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 6.18, but it's not the only thing. And so if you don't uh, pray in tongues, if you don't speak in tongues in your private prayer life, it's not like you can't do Ephesians 6.18. You can still do that. You can still pray many different types of ways. You can still offer supplication many different types of ways. Uh, the Spirit can still lead you without tongues. I just want to be very clear about that. But Ephesians 6.18 might be including tongues as some portion of it. And the final one is the one that's probably the most controversial of this class of verses. And that is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Um, so in verse 26 it says, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Um, you know, a lot of people see tongues here. A lot of people uh, see um, this language and they think that it's referring to tongues. And, you know, it might be referring to tongues. That could That's a possibility here. Um, the, the problem with that is, again, sort of, twofold. Number one, 1 Corinthians 12 is absolutely clear that not all Christians will speak in tongues, whether they can or not. It's a separate question. We'll get to that in the Q&A a little bit in more detail. Uh, but not every Christian is going to do it. And so if we, you know, this, whatever this is in, in Romans 8 has to be something that all Christians can do. Um, and the other, the other concern with tongues being in mind here is this specific wording the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the idea here is, is that what is being prayed for or the concerns that are being prayed for are so difficult for us to, to express. We don't have words for them. And what is speaking in tongues? Speaking in tongues is speaking in a language. It's speaking words that can be uttered. So... I don't know. I don't know about this one. Um, this is one of those sections that's likely going to come down to uh, how pro-tongues you are. If you are very pro-tongues, you likely see tongues here. If you are less less uh, less pro-tongues, I guess. <laughs> I'm not going to say anyone's anti-tongues. Uh, but if you're less pro-tongues, you're more open to the possibility that this might not be tongues. Um I don't know. It's unclear to me exactly what it's talking about here. It certainly could be, in my mind, speaking in tongues. It could be uh, other types of prayer as well. So those are three uh, more controversial uh, things about more controversial sections that may or may not be including tongues or may or may not have tongues in mind, um, but certainly look like they could be interesting in the context of tongues. So that's, that's basically, I've just concluded, as far as I understand, all the verses in the Bible that talk about speaking in tongues. That's it. Um, 
You've got a couple, you've got the Mark reference, which may or may not be in the original manuscripts. You've got the three mentions of it in the book of Acts, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19. And then you've got everything that's revealed in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 about tongues. Um, and I guess I skipped the verse in 13 about tongues ceasing when, when Jesus comes back. But again, it just mentions tongues there. Um, so, you know, that's it. That's, those are all the verses. And then there's three sections we looked at, Romans, Ephesians, Jude, uh, that talk about, possibly talk about tongues in some sense or some context, or maybe it's including tongues to some degree. So that's everything that the Bible says about tongues. And again, I want to point out that in the three questionable passages, Romans, Jude, and Ephesians, all three of them, what's in view is prayer. What's in view is prayer. Um, in the Acts 2 and 10 and 19 uh, sections, well, the Acts 2 and 10 section specifically is praise. So Acts 2 and Acts 10 specifically talking about praise. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul describes speaking tongues over and over again as prayer, talking to God, praise. So again, just want to point that out, that by definition, speaking in tongues is speaking to God. It's prayer, praise. And every single verse that the Bible talks about it, unambiguously and ambiguously, the context is prayer and praise every single time. So again, just want to point that out from a definitional perspective. Uh, we'll get to my definition of tongues a little bit later, but just to sort of bring that up now. Now, I want to talk about verses that are not about tongues, that we've been told are about tongues but are not about tongues. So I'm just going to do this in biblical order. Um, there's no real rhyme or reason to the order. I'm just going to go straight through the Bible. Uh, we're going to start with Isaiah 28, verse 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, Yahweh will speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. This, of course, is the passage that is being quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And in the 1 Corinthians 14 passage, yes, it is talking about tongues. Paul is applying this text to speaking in tongues. But in the original passage, this has nothing to do about tongues. This is a common thing with prophecy where things get uh, you know, reappropriated, reused, and we don't have to imagine that the original context has anything to do with speaking in tongues because it just doesn't. This is talking about the languages of the invading armies, okay, in Isaiah 28. It has nothing to do with speaking in tongues, nothing at all. Uh, the next one is in Zephaniah, Zephaniah. And in Zephaniah chapter 3, Zephaniah, Zephaniah 3, verse uh, 9 is the verse we want to get to. But I want to read a little bit of the context. I think this will help. Let's read verse 8. It says, Therefore wait for me, declares Yahweh, for the day when I will rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out, Upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Okay, that is clearly 
a kingdom prophecy about judgment, about what God's going to do with the world when he comes back to reign the kingdoms of this world. Verse 9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, name of Yahweh, and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Look, this is talking about the kingdom. I mean, when he changes the speech of peoples to a pure speech, this is not talking about speaking in tongues. This is talking about, in the final kingdom, how we'll all speak up the pure language of God, the pure language that God wants us to, to share in all eternity with. Um, so some people have come here and said that Zephaniah 3.9 is talking about speaking in tongues. I do think that the, uh, that the day of Pentecost... Uh, the whole idea of them speaking the actual dialects of the people present, it was a sign that indicated to them, perhaps, if they were paying close attention, that Babel was eventually going to be reversed, that, that the messing up of all the languages, how we all speak different languages all over the world, uh, that that was going to be reversed. But that hasn't happened yet. And Ze Zephaniah 3 is talking about the time when that is completed, when that the, the work that... Uh, was started at Babel will be completely reversed when we all will speak, as it says here, a pure speech. That's not talking about speaking in tongues. That's talking about this future, we can call it maybe a heavenly language. That's what it's talking about. And the context is absolutely clear, I think, that this is talking about the final kingdom, final judgment. At that time, I will change the speech of peoples to a pure speech. Okay, so I think I've labored on that one enough. Uh, let The next one that people have said is about speaking in tongues and isn't, is John 4. John 4, and it says, this is the woman at the well. Jesus is talking to her. And later on in the conversation, he says in verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Some people have said that worshiping God in spirit and in truth just flat out is speaking in tongues. That's not true. Like, there's nothing here in the context that demands that interpretation. Um, and in fact, there's indications that that's wrong because Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Well, if it's now here, if the, if the time was just right then, right then available then this is a lie. If it's about tongues, if it's only about tongues, then this is a lie because tongues had not been given till the day of Pentecost. So, so Jesus here is at least uh, six months or so early on, on saying that the time is now here. Now, maybe you can say that he was being hyperbolic here, you know, is coming, is now here. Um, you know, maybe he's trying to, you know, be sort of clever here. And maybe you could wiggle into that. But even if you want to do that, what you could say about this, and we're going to get to this more in the Q&A, so I'm not going to do this, uh, you know, in long form. But, but just suffice it to say that uh, worship has many different aspects to it in the Bible. You have bowing, praise, you know, prayer. Um, there's all sorts of ways that we can worship God. Lifting our hands, you know, there's all sorts of ways we can worship God. Um, 
through, you know, through song, music, uh, just playing different instruments, whatever. Uh, there's all sorts of ways we can do it. Speaking in tongues is one of them. And I'm not saying that we can't look back at this record in John 4 and sort of like lump tongues into this uh, as like a subset of the ways that we can worship God in spirit and truth. That, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's a, it might be a, a small subset of what's being talked about here. But the phrase, worship him in spirit and in truth, that is not another definition for speaking in tongues. It's just not. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Some people say that there's a phrase that gets used here in Acts chapter 2. We'll just read it here. Verse 32, Acts 2, 32, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the argument that gets used here is that speaking in tongues is proof of the resurrection of Jesus. And they use this section to do it because what happened in the context? Well, they spoke in tongues. Yeah, I mean, speaking in tongues is, I suppose, on some level, like genuine speaking in tongues is on some level proof of the resurrection of Jesus. I do sort of agree with that. I don't think that's the main point that's being made here in Acts 2, nor do I think that's the main point that's being made in Acts generally. Um, in the next chapter, for example, they're going to heal a guy who was lame, and then that's going to become proof of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, they're going to cast out spirits later in the book of Acts, and that's going to be proof of the resurrection of Jesus. So we could say, I think, generally speaking, that any genuine activity of the Spirit is proof of the resurrection of Jesus. I think that's, I think that's fair to say any Spirit activity. But to go to Acts 2, 32 and 33 and to like drill down hard and say that speaking in tongues is like the only evidence of Jesus' resurrection... Or even that that's like a primary benefit of speaking in tongues. I think that's taking that context too far. Uh, again, any genuine spirit activity in some sense is proof of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, I do agree with that. But I think we have to be very careful about how hard we push on some of these things. Um, and that, that leads me to a whole bunch of passages in the epistles uh, that where people have pushed way too hard on passages that are just generally about the spirit. And people want to make them benefits of speaking in tongues specifically. And I just think it's really wrong-headed. Uh, in, in Romans chapter uh, 8, we'll pick it up in verse... Uh, well, actually, we'll pick it up in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God, uh, Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness... If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Um, some people have used verse 11 to say that speaking in tongues, one of the benefits of speaking in tongues is quickening or giving life to your mortal bodies. Look, that's not what it's talking about. That's It's talking about generally things about the spirit here. It has this has nothing tongues is nowhere in this context it's not it's not being mentioned explicitly implicitly it's just generally talking about life in the spirit you know here i'm going to agree with my esv bible has at the top of of the page on on top of chapter 8 it says life in the spirit that's what it's talking about life in the spirit life in the spirit it's not talking about tongues if we keep reading verses 
12, 12 and on. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this is talking about sanctification, putting to death the deeds of the body. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. So another benefit of speaking in tongues some people give is that, that we know that we're sons of God. Okay, this is talking about our actions being led by the Spirit of God and specifically not sinning, not doing the deeds of the body. So not only is this not talking about tongues, there's actually something very specific in mind here that isn't tongues. And that is living a righteous life. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there are a couple other benefits in here of tongues in these verses that people talk about, but the context here we've already seen, the context here is living a sanctified life. And sure, we can address God as Father, Abba, Father. We do that in our prayers with our understanding. This, this, nowhere does this have speaking in tongues in mind. It just has living sanctified, living righteous lives in mind. And can speaking in tongues be a part of living a righteous life? Sure, it can be a part of a beautiful, righteous life in Christ. Absolutely. But that is not what is in mind in this passage. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians 12. There's a verse in here. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So some people say that one of the benefits of speaking in tongues is you can truly say Jesus is Lord because you speak in tongues. I mean, look, <clears throat> Paul is going to say later in 1 Corinthians 12 that not everyone can speak, will speak in tongues, excuse me, not can, but will. Not every Christian will. These are people who live their lives, have declared Jesus as Lord, and have been faithful to claim, not only claim Jesus as Lord, but to make Jesus their Lord in their day-to-day -day lives, and they will never actually speak in tongues. I think that answers the question here about whether this is talking about tongues or not. This is not talking about tongues. This is talking more broadly about life in the Spirit, spiritual things more generally. Uh, speaking in tongues doesn't come specifically into view until he lists it in verse 10 of this same chapter. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Some people say that one of the benefits of speaking in tongues is uh, being renewed day by day. And look, again, this is, you can read the whole context here. I'm not going to get into all of it. Um, nowhere in here is it talking about speaking in tongues. This is generally just talking about how our bodies are dying day by day. We're getting older, we're dying. And our spirit doesn't get older. The spiritual part of ourselves does not get older. And there's a couple ways we can interpret that. We can either interpret that as like body, soul, and spirit. The spiritual part that was given to us at the new birth never gets older. We could also understand it in the sense that like there's this anticipatory sense where the kingdom is coming and we know that our spiritual lives, our lives in Christ, our eternal lives. And therefore, even though we're living another day, we're getting older, we're getting closer to our physical death in this life. That in terms of the next life, if we group those two lives together, 
that that's an eternal life and that, nope, it's renewed day by day. We're, we can live ju- we're ju- going to live just as long tomorrow as we live today. You know, either way you go with it, this is not talking about tongues. Not at all. Galatians chapter 4 is our next one. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then heir through God. I mean, look, this, this context is very similar to the context we saw in Romans. Um, and so, again, we're talking generally about life in the Spirit. And again, this, this does not, uh, this does not have anything to do specifically with tongues. I'm just going to keep moving. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 talk about the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are, is no law. Okay. Some, some have taught that one of the benefits of speaking in tongues or really any manifestation of the Spirit is that when you manifest the Spirit, you get the fruit of the Spirit. The fruits are like the result of manifesting the Spirit. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying here that the fruit of, of having the Spirit and of acting and living in the Spirit, because in the context he's saying, look, there's all these works of the flesh, all these things you should not be doing. And then here he's saying the fruit of the Spirit is... So if you want to look at someone, what he's saying is if you want to look at someone from the outside and you want to know that they're a Christian, you're going to see love. You're going to see joy. You're going to see peace. You're going to see patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Okay. You're going to see these things. If you want to understand who's a Christian and who's not a Christian, these are the things you're looking for. These are the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that you have the Spirit. This is not a result necessarily of you speaking in tongues or manifesting any other gift or manifestation of the Spirit, this is a, a manifestation or a fruit of the fact that you actually have the Spirit and you're walking with Christ. That's what this is. And again, <laughs> again, if we're going to say that this has to be about tongues on some level, we're going to buck up against 1 Corinthians 12 that says that not every Christian is going to speak in tongues. And these, nonetheless, are fruit of people who are born again, who have the Spirit. So I think, I think we, can, we can see that there's a contradiction there. This is just generally talking about having the Spirit. Not manifesting it, but having it and living in a way that befits the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 13... It says, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So again, some people say that like this is a benefit of speaking in tongues, that you like know that you're saved or know that you have your guarantee of your inheritance or something like that. Um, look, this is not talking about speaking in tongues specifically. This is talking about uh, receiving the Holy Spirit and how the receiving the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until we receive the fullness of our inheritance in the kingdom. Um, now, does speaking in tongues maybe help certain people, uh, you know, feel like they've confirmed that they're born again or something? Sure, like it might give you some sort of peace or something uh, that you can manifest God's power in that way. I think that's fine. Um, but does, th- is this talking about a benefit specifically of tongues? No, 
No, tongues isn't anywhere in view. Um, it's just talking about the Holy Spirit generally. And Ephesians 3 is our last verse that fits this category. Ephesians 3. I'm going to read the larger section. The, the verse we're looking at is verse 16. But we're going to, I'm going to read starting in verse 14. Uh, this is one of the, Paul's prayers here. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And he goes on the next couple of verses. Look, again, this is just generally talking about spiritual strength, um, that God would strengthen us in all these different ways, that we might be rooted and grounded in love. You know, there's all these different things that he's praying for. People sometimes have taught that being strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being is referring specifically to speaking in tongues. Look, there's no tongues language here. There's nothing in the context that leads anyone to believe that this is talking about tongues. Okay? This is just generally talking about spiritual strength. Life in the spirit. Things that, that Paul wanted them to see in their lives. If he wanted to talk about tongues, he had the vocabulary to talk about tongues, and he doesn't, he doesn't do it. So, that, those are a, a comprehensive list of verses that I could find that people have talked about tongues that are not actually about tongues. So with this in mind, I wanted to give my biblical definition of tongues the best that I can do it personally. Again, maybe some of you can help me improve on this. I, I'm happy for the feedback, happy for the, the help on this. And I also want to give some benefits as far as I can identify in the Bible, uh, trying to really honestly collapse the benefits down. You know, I've seen, you know, I think we all come from background where we've seen the expansive list where two things that are very similar are listed as if they're separate. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to take things that are very similar and I'm going to combine them together. And I'm going to make a very simple list and make this as simple and as, with as much brevity and clarity as I can. So here's my definition. My definition of speaking in tongues is, speaking in tongues is a God-given language unknown to the speaker and likely unknown to all potential listeners in a meeting. This God-given language is always described as prayer or praise speech to God. In our private prayer lives, it builds up the person speaking in their spirit, even though it bypasses the mind. In a meeting, tongues must always be interpreted so that the people in the meeting may be encouraged and know to say amen. That's my definition of tongues. That's what tongues is, from my understanding. Now, the benefits of tongues. Here are my benefits for speaking in tongues. Number one, it builds up the person speaking in the spirit, bypassing the mind. So it builds up the person in the spirit. Number two, it's giving thanks or praying well. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the Q&A as well. Giving thanks or praying well. It is also praising God well. That's, those are the benefits. And if we want to add in a meeting, in a meeting it serves as an inspired prayer or praise to God that encourages others in the meeting when it's interpreted. Those are the benefits of speaking in tongues. 
I know it's a much shorter list than what we're used to hearing, but I encourage you to check, check, my, check my work, to go back to all those verses that we talked about in this teaching and you know, be, a, be a Berean and check it out. And if you find something that I've overlooked, I'm happy to look at it again. But in my mind, that's the benefit of tongues. Now I would like to go through some questions and answers about speaking in tongues. And these come from a variety of sources. Many of them I made myself. Uh, some of them come from uh, people in the church. Uh, some of them come from uh, different interactions that I've had uh, with different people in the past. So, you know, they're sort of all different from all different sources. So I don't want you to think that, you know, all of them were people in the church or anything like that. Uh, some of them definitely were. So number one, do all Christians speak in tongues? My answer, no. Paul explicitly says that not all Christians will speak in tongues. That is in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30. Number two, can all Christians speak in tongues? My answer to that is maybe. The Bible does not actually ever explicitly answer that question. Uh, you know, based on the evidence from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, I tend, I tend to think that the answer is yes. Um, I tend to think that maybe every Christian um, could theoretically speak in tongues. I'm, I'm, really, I'm like open to that. Um, but I think it's really important that we as a church are not dogmatic about this since the Bible never explicitly this, answers this question. So, you know, if, if you're, I just want to encourage you, if you're, if you're a person who attends Compass and does not speak in tongues, does not make you any less of a Christian, doesn't make you any less of a spiritual person, it just means you don't speak in tongues. Number three, <clears throat> this is related. Is speaking in tongues the only proof of the Spirit or the primary proof that someone has the Spirit? My answer, absolutely not. Throughout the New Testament, many proofs of the Spirit are given. For example, in Galatians 5, verses 23 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit are listed. As our Lord Jesus taught, quote, you shall know them by their fruit. That is Matthew 7, and that's in the context of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Another example is found in 1 John 3.10, where obedience to God and living righteously are considered the evidence of who are the children of God. Uh, Paul makes a similar point. We saw this earlier in Romans 8, that those who are led by the Spirit, and in that context, what he means by that is those who are not acting according to the flesh, meaning living a righteous lifestyle, that those are the people who are sons of God. So according to the New Testament witness, the largest, most consistent proof of the Spirit is a transformed, obedient lifestyle in conformity to Christ. That is the proof of the Spirit. That is the primary proof of the Spirit in the New Testament, not tongues. Question number four, <clears throat> does everyone speak in tongues immediately upon conversion? Well, no, I mean, we've already seen this, that not every Christian is even going to speak in tongues. So, you know, very clearly, this answer to this question is no. If they're not gonna do it ever, they're definitely not gonna do it at their conversion. However, I do wanna point out that in the book of Acts, there are uh, three occasions in Acts 2, in Acts 10, and Acts 19, where those who were born again uh, immediately did evidence speaking in tongues. And in one of those instances, as we saw, they evidenced prophecy on top of tongues. Um, so it could happen. 
we get a new person in the church and, uh, you know, they're baptized or whatever and, um, and they accept Christ. And yeah, it's possible that when they pray that prayer, when they get, you know, have that conversion moment, whatever you want to call it, just like they did in the book of Acts, it's possible that they'll start speaking in tongues. That's, that's a possibility. Uh, but it's not a necessary, uh, it's not a necessary thing to happen upon conversion. Number five, is there ever a reason to have tongues without interpretation in a public meeting? In a public meeting? No, absolutely not. The Bible is clear that when tongues are present, so should interpretation in a public meeting. Now, if you have a private meeting with mostly those instructed, perhaps a small group, mostly instructed about manifestations or gifts, maybe you have a small group of people that want to learn more, uh, then maybe tongues without interpretation might be permissible. Um, you could also imagine like a prayer or a praise meeting where, you know, you have only instructed people and you just say, look, we're all going to pray in tongues together. We're all going to sing in tongues together, whatever, you know, like if everyone's instructed, if it's a private meeting, you know, I think it's possible. I'm not saying it's biblical. You know, this is, again, this is not discussed in the Bible. I think it's not, it's hard to be really dogmatic on this point. Uh, but I do think that some of us have experienced these types of meetings before where tongues was not interpreted and it was in these kind of private meetings. I think that's probably okay. Um, I think people that are seeking the spirit, you know, there are, there are ways to do that behind closed doors that you wouldn't want to do in a public meeting. And first Corinthians 14 is clear that it's talking about the public meeting. So that's, that's what I'd say about that. Number six. In a meeting, what should tongues with interpretation sound like? My answer, since tongues is always defined as prayer or praise to God, speaking to God, then the interpretation should sound like that. It should not sound, it should not sound like a message from God. And I just want to make a point about the tongue itself, the language itself. Um, the tongue itself, it's going to be unintelligible 99.999% of the time. But I, I do think that it's important people have made the, a point about this. And I think it's a good point that it should sound like a real language. It should sound like a real language and not like gibberish, you know, like beep, boop, 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 boop. That's not tongues. Okay. Um, should sound like a real language should have normal vocalization should have some sort of syntax should have, you know, all the characteristics of a real language. I do agree with that. Now, when someone's brand new and they're speaking in tongues for the first time, you know, maybe it doesn't sound quite as strong. I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. Again, the Bible doesn't really explicitly say much about it, but it does say it's a language. Gloss is the word for language. So we would expect it to sound like a language. That's my point. All right. If uh, Number seven, if the content of the tongue with interpretation is prayer or praise and not a message from God, what is its purpose in the meeting? My answer is, Inspired prayers and inspired praise definitely have a place in the worship meeting. Um, again, you look at the Psalms. Psalms are a great example of inspired praise, inspired prayer. Uh, they're inspired. We just read inspired prayer in Ephesians 3. It's very uplifting, very encouraging, profitable for doctrine, reproof, and, and uh, correction, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, clearly, pr inspired prayers, inspired praise is profitable for the meeting. Absolutely. And honestly, I'm, I'm going to turn the question back around. Um, 
why have tongues with a message from God when prophecy is a message from God and you can get there without the tongues to begin with? So in other words, if, if, you, if you speak in tongues and you interpret and the interpretation sounds just like a prophecy, then why not just do the prophecy? You could actually just do the tongue to yourself if you wanted to do it and then just prophesy. And then it would minimize the time in the meeting when you're the only one getting blessed and encouraged and no one else is. So I think it does have a separate place in the worship meeting, um, separate from prophecy. Number eight, should we have tongues with interpretation in every meeting? No, I mean, I think the answer to that is no. We don't, we don't need to have it in every meeting. Paul considered tongues with interpretation an os- optional aspect of the worship service. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 14, 27. And I think specifically, we should be especially considerate if there are people of unknown background in the meeting, as tongues can be difficult for the uninitiated to handle. And again, that's the force of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 21 to 23. Question number nine. Is it possible for someone to fake speaking in tongues? My answer is, well, you know, honestly, that depends on what you mean by fake. If you mean, can someone sound like they are genuinely speaking in tongues and not be, then the answer is yes. And I'm going to give you two, at least two ways this can happen. Number one, demons know many languages. So someone possessed with a demon could theoretically speak in a language known by the demon, unknown to the person, and unknown to the people present. And not only is that possible, some have actually reported incidents like that in history, okay? Now, I also think that it's possible that some people, especially in Pentecostal groups, have been pressured into speaking in tongues, and some of them have, like, known Spanish or known another language that most people in the room don't know. Um, And so they can sound like they're speaking in tongues by just, like, throwing out gibberish words in these other languages. I've heard of examples of that, and that could be a non-demonic way that this could happen uh, to sort of like satisfy the social um, pressure or whatever. And that brings me to another point. We should not be socially pressuring people into speaking in tongues, either in their private prayer life or in the church. There's no place for that. It's a legitimate gift from God. And as such, it's between the person and God. There should be no pressure about that. There should be no public social pressure about speaking in tongues on any level. Now, getting back to the question about faking speaking in tongues, if what you mean by the question is, can someone fake a legitimate gifting of tongues? No. You know, like a legitimate gifting is a legitimate gifting, whether it's tongues, whether it's something else. Um, so depends on what you mean by fake, I guess. Question number 10, why should we speak in tongues? My answer is 1 Corinthians 12, 31 and 14, 1 says we should all seek spiritual things generally. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.5 says that Paul uh, suggests that we should all speak in tongues. On some level, he thinks that it's a good thing. Whether we take that as a universal or in a specific context, um, and you know, people argue and bicker about that back and forth, as I talked about in 1 Corinthians 14. But the point I'm trying to make here is that speaking in tongues is a very good thing. It's a legitimate work of the Spirit. The benefits include praying to God well, praising God well, building up the spirit of the person speaking in tongues, All these things are remarkably positive things. These are things that we should desire. Um, And then depending on your reading of Romans 8.26 and Ephesians 6.18, you could add that it's another layer of prayer for the specific purpose of praying for things that are unknown or praying in context that help with spiritual warfare. 
you know, you have these other things that you can add to sort of tack on a couple additional, like quasi additional benefits of tongues. There are lots of reasons to do tongues. And again, I'm not trying to guilt trip those or pressure those who don't speak in tongues into doing it. I'm just saying that there are many benefits to it and that, that's why we should do it. Um, number 11, how common is speaking in tongues throughout Christianity? Uh, my answer is, it is well known that most denominations and churches do not allow space for the gifts of the Spirit in the general assembly. And I, I disagree with that. You know, at Compass, we do allow for gifts in a public setting. And obviously, the church in Corinth did the same. And I think that really probably all of them did in the early church allowed for these types of gifts. Um, and so it's, it is unfortunate that many of our brothers and sisters don't allow space in the meeting for that to happen. But I want to point out that there are many well-known people throughout Christianity who admit that even though their churches don't allow space for these gifts in their public meetings, they still speak in tongues in their own private prayer life. Okay, so here come a couple of examples of Christians who speak in tongues uh, regardless of their denominational affiliation. N.T. Wright speaks in tongues in his private prayer life. Uh, the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, speaks in tongues. Uh, Christian teacher and author Steve Gregg speaks in tongues. Dr. Michael Brown, who debated Del Tuggy on the Trinity, he speaks in tongues. Pastor Sam Storms, famously, speaks in tongues. The late scholar Gordon Fee, whose commentary on Corinthians I use extensively, he spoke in tongues. He came from a Pentecostal background. And I'll add, an estimated half a billion people, 500 million people in the church, speak in tongues in their private prayer life. Many of them are charismatic Catholics. It's remarkable, remarkable. Many, many people speak in tongues. So I would say that approximately 20% of Christianity speaks in tongues, or admit, at least admit to it, okay? So it's, it's a pretty common thing. It's not universal in practice, but it's pretty common. Number 12, should we expect to see times when tongues is understood in the meeting? My answer is, look, the day of Pentecost, famously, was an example when the people in the crowd understood what was being said. Uh, I think that there have been moments in modern history, like in missionary environments, public meetings with where speaking in tongues happened with interpretation, where the per someone there understood the language and said the interpretation was good, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, it's possible. It's a theoretical possibility, but... Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 14 seems to indicate that that would not be normal. That like normative speaking in tongues is not understood, certainly by the person speaking, and then also not understood by the people present. So we should not expect this to happen. It's not something that we should seek after, although it could happen. I'm going to get into some questions now that the cessationists generally get into. The first one is number 13. Are the cessationists right when they conclude that tongues were just a sign gift for unbelieving Jews and therefore cease in 70 AD? My answer is, is this. <clears throat> some cessationists argue that 1 Corinthians 14, 21 to 23 indicates that tongues is a sign specifically for unbelieving Jews. And because of this, the need for tongues disappeared in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of the Jews. Okay. Interestingly enough, this actually does make pretty good sense of the passage being cited in Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. The problem is that the original Isaiah passage is, unbelieving, uh, is, a, is about unbelieving Jews uh, about to be conquered by foreign invaders. 
So it's, it is unbelieving Jews in the context of Isaiah 28, but it's in the context of historical unbelieving Jews about to be conquered by foreign invaders. And as we've already seen, Paul applies this passage to the Corinthian situation without a one-to-one -one correspondence. This is something that's common in prophecy and fulfillment, that there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. He's lifting certain things out, and then he's, um, he's applying it in a new and surprising way. Okay. So Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 14 is about outsiders coming in and believing that the Corinthian believers are crazy. So Paul's concern is for the general unbeliever, not for the unbelieving Jew specifically. And it's very clear this was a mixed church, um, and there would have been mixed people coming in from the outside. If Paul wanted to specify Jews, he would have specified Jews, but he didn't. He did not specify Jews. And in the context of this question, it's important to note that of the records and acts that specifically mention speaking in tongues, unbelieving Jews were only present at one of the three incidents. They're only present in Acts 2. In Acts 10, it was believing Jews who were there. And in Acts 19, it was only Peter that was there. So there, there was no sign to unbelieving Jews in those Acts 10 and Acts 19 occurrences. Additionally, we've already seen in the series that 1 Corinthians 13 is simply assuming that all gifts, manifestations of the Spirit will persist until Jesus returns. That's what it means when the perfect comes. And that's in accord with all the early church fathers' commentaries on the subject. So it's, it's very well understood from the beginning of Christianity, this is what was meant. In other words, the cessationist argument is a rather new argument. If we needed more arguments for it, Sam Storms provides another one. For tongues to function as a sign to the Jews, it would have to be uninterpreted. In the context of Isaiah 28, the languages of the invaders was not interpreted. And so for it to function in the same way that it did in Isaiah 28, it would have to be uninterpreted. But God also is very clear in a public setting that this should be interpreted. Tongues should be interpreted, which takes tongues from being unintelligible to being intelligible. And so that doesn't fit anymore with the context of Isaiah 28. And that's enough on that question, I think. Number 14, are the cessationists right that because tongues is only explicitly mentioned in 1 Corinthians, it was on the way out or that it's minimally important? My answer is I'm going to agree with Sam Storms on this. You know, look, if we want to say that that's true about tongues, it's also true about all the other things that are listed in that list in 1 Corinthians 12, because a lot of them aren't listed in Romans 12. A lot of them aren't listed in Ephesians 4, these other listings of the gifts of the Spirit. Um... It also would apply to something like the Lord's Prayer, or excuse me, the Lord's Supper, which only gets mentioned in 1 Corinthians. So I think it was only an issue in the Corinthian church. That's why Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. I don't think we have to assume that it was on the way out or being phased out or that it's minimally important. Uh, all spiritual things are important. Okay, so we're going to reject that cessationist line of thinking. Number 15, and this one was bizarre. Uh, are cessationists right to say that Paul is exclusively talking about tongues in a meeting in 1 Corinthians 14? If you go uh, listen to that presentation that Focus on the Kingdom did that I recommend at the beginning of this session, they uh, explicitly assume that Paul is only talking about public tongues, that like tongues is only a public thing. And it is like the most bizarre thing in the world to me that you could say that. Um, and they do this. The reason why they do this is they want to exclude this idea of praying in the spirit, exclude this idea of 
tongues in your private prayer life. And that like very explicitly came up in this conversation that I referenced before. Um, and it's, it's bonkers guys. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers. First uh, Corinthians 14 verses 18 and 19, the transition and this, I try to point out to them. I, I submitted a question that pointed this out and they didn't, they didn't really answer it. I don't think very comprehensively. Um, First Corinthians 14 verses 18 and 19, make it absolutely clear that Paul has two different settings in mind. He has his private, private prayer life in mind, as well as in a meeting. So no, I'm going to reject what cessationists say about that. That is, that is silly. Last question about cessationists, number 16. Are the cessationists right when they say that genuine tongues should always be in an intelligible human language? My answer, first, Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 14 clearly supposes that the languages being spoken in tongues are of a variety unknown to anyone in the audience. That's why outsiders will consider the tongue speakers crazy, verse 23, and why even the believers will be unedified by the speech. That's in verses 2 to 6. So the basic premise of the cessationists that the tongues should be understood as they are being spoken works only in Acts 2, but nowhere else that tongues are mentioned in Scripture. And I think the, the second point here is there is an open question of what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 13.1, the tongues of men and of angels. That leads us to question 17. Is 1 Corinthians 13.1, where Paul talks about tongues of men or of angels, and of angels, is that meant to be taken hyperbolically or literally? Look, many scholars are on both sides of the debate. Uh, many people think he's being hyperbolic here. Some people think that he could be being literal on some level. My, this is my answer to it. Even if, it's, even if it is hyperbolic, even if this whole section is intended to be hyperbolic, it does not determine the answer to the question. Because in the next few verses, Paul does indeed give some interesting actions that seem hyperbolic, but they're all possible. Like you can give your body to be burned or boast, depending on your textual variant you like there. You can understand mysteries. You can have prophetic powers. You can have the knowledge from God. You can have, you can give away everything that you own. Like all these are possible things. So he can be hyperbolic and he can still be talking about possible things. So I tend to side with Sam Storms and Gordon Fee on this. I think that speaking in tongues could be tongues of men and of angels because every other thing that he said that's hyperbolic the whole rest of the way, all those things are possible. And so I think you go back to verse one, you say, well, it could be tongues of men, could be tongues of angels. I don't think we can decide. Uh, number 18, what does it mean that speaking in tongues, quote, builds up your spirit, end quote? All right, my answer to this is 1 Corinthians 14, when we combine verses 4 and 14 together, demonstrate that speaking in tongues edifies the person speaking, and it, but it doesn't do it in their mind. Now, this does seem wild. It seems wild to me. It seems, I'm sure, weird and wild to all of us in a modern Western culture where we become so used to mathematical precision and logic. Uh, but look, this must be true. It's in the Bible, and it's pretty clearly true. So there must be some spiritual benefit to it that bypasses our understanding. How this exactly happens is not explained in Scripture, even in Jude 120, uh, which is the other place that possibly references this. There, we don't get an explanation. We just get told, look, it's building up the Spirit. Whatever that means. I don't know what it means, but it, it does happen. It is a benefit of speaking in tongues. Question number 19. Are there any Old Testament prophecies that talk about speaking in tongues? 
Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Some believe that Isaiah 28 uh, verses 11 and 12 and Zechariah 3, 9 are talking about speaking in tongues. Uh, the Isaiah passage, because it's quoted in 1 Corinthians, uh, we've already talked about how uh, this is not really a case of like a prophecy being a one-to-one -one fulfillment, but rather uh, this is a reapplication of a text that was used in one context and some of the flavor and meaning is coming forward into the new context, but not all of it. Um, for another example of this, you could look at Hosea 11.1 1 and Matthew 2.15. It's another example of how that principle of prophecy works. Uh, Zechariah 3.9, as we've already seen, is a uh, is in the context of the total reversal of the Tower of Babel uh, when the kingdom comes in its fullness. So, no, there are no clear prophecies about speaking in tongues in the Old Testament. Number 20, what does it mean when it says that the tongue speaker, quote, speaks mysteries? Uh, look, some people have made a big deal about this phrase and tried to make it into a benefit of speaking in tongues. Uh, because the word mysteries is used in other contexts to indicate messages of great value, including what many have called the great mystery of the Gentiles being fellow heirs with Jews in Christ as it gets revealed in Ephesians. So the word mystery is sort of like a trigger point for some people. And so speaking mystery sounds like something really powerful or, or um, you know, amazing or something. But I think in the context Paul's talking here in 1 Corinthians 14, the main point that Paul's making is that the foundational problem uh, with tongues in the Corinthian meetings is that it's unintelligible and it's not being interpreted. So I tend to side with the idea that when Paul says that the tongue speaker speaks mysteries, that this is sort of a tongue-in-cheek rebuke of the unintelligibility of tongues. In other words, I don't think this is a benefit. I think Paul's sort of being cheeky here. Um, saying, look, you're speaking mysteries. Like, no one knows what you're saying is sort of what he's saying. Um, so, anyway, that's my take on speaking mysteries. Uh, number 21. Is tongue speaking an ecstatic experience or can the person control when he or she speaks in tongues? I think the answer on this is pretty clear. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 27 both limits the number of people who can speak in tongues in a meeting and suggests that each person can do so sequentially. Both of those guidelines presupposes the control of the utterance by the person speaking in tongues. And of course, that's explicitly stated in verse 32, that the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And of course, the same would apply to the tongue speaker. Verse, or excuse me, uh, question number 22. Is speaking in tongues, quote, perfect prayer, end quote? Look, I get the concept behind this terminology uh, if we are praying through the Spirit, if the Spirit is giving us the language, then we are simply speaking what God would want us to speak. You know, therefore, we could call this perfect prayer perfect praise. I get that. I also want to say that I hesitate to use language that the Bible doesn't use. So the word used in 1 Corinthians 14, 17 that's translated like you give thanks well or give thanks in the ESV, I think it says well enough or something like that. It's the word kalos, which means beautiful or excellent. Now, there is a word that's sometimes translated perfect, also translated mature. Uh, that's teleos. And teleos was actually used in the context. 1 Corinthians 13.10, when that which is perfect has come, referring to Jesus. When Jesus comes back, he's the teleos man. He's the perfect one. When he comes back, blah, 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 blah is going to happen, right? Okay. 
So Paul knows the word. He's used it, he uses it many times. He actually uses it in the context, in, in this context, but he doesn't use it of tongues. He uses the word kolos, which means, again, beautiful or excellent. Whatever reason, Paul chose kolos and not teleos. So I get the logic of calling speaking in tongues perfect prayer. I probably am going to shy away from calling it perfect prayer personally, uh, just because I think it's better to use biblical language. I think an alternate to it would be to call speaking in tongues excellent prayer, excellent praise, or beautiful prayer, beautiful praise. I think those are all fine. Um, question number 23. What does worshiping in spirit and truth mean? Does it include speaking in tongues? So the phrase, and we talked about this before, but the phrase comes from John 4, 24. Nowhere in the context does this indicate speaking in tongues. Uh, again, I'm going to reiterate the idea of worship is way more complex. It's way broader than just speaking in tongues. Uh, for example, in Romans 12, in the grandest sense, our whole lives, when lived in an upright, moral way, it exemplifies worship and service to God. Okay. In the Old Testament, the main word for worship in the Hebrew is shacha. And it can indicate like bowing or service performed. It can, it's used in the context of like the ritual sacrifices offered in the temple, the tabernacle. It's used of like general respect and reverence. Okay. It's also frequently used for music performances, singing and praising God in song and dance. Okay. All these things are worship. And so for the woman at the well, when Jesus is talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth, she would have had all of that in her mind in terms of worship. So I can, I can bow, I can lift my hands, I can do a service, I can do a sacrifice, I can just generally respect and revere God in all of my, in all my life. I can worship in song, I can worship by playing an instrument. All these things you can do in spirit and in truth. All of those things. Now, is speaking, should speaking in tongues be excluded from this list? I don't think so. I mean, according to 1 Corinthians 14, speaking in tongues is praise as well. So, I mean, I can envision like if Paul lived in modern times, we can envision the Apostle Paul like singing in tongues in the shower while he's getting ready for work. You know what I'm saying? Like, totally fine. Totally fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But worshiping in spirit and truth is not a one-to-one -one correspondence to tongues. Can you include tongues in it? Yes. But it's not, there's a lot more to worship in spirit and truth than tongues, like way, way, way more. Question number 24. Oh, this is a long one. Most of the other manifestations seem to be, quote, taste of the kingdom, end quote. Healing, for example, anticipates the coming kingdom where everyone will be completely healed and live forever. In what sense is speaking in tongues, quote, a taste of the kingdom, end quote? This is a great question. Uh, there are, I think, several possible answers to this question. Um, first, I pointed out this before, to, to, uh, this before. Some scholars have pointed out that the initial outpouring at Pentecost anticipated a time when the consequence of Babel will be removed. So, for example, in the kingdom, we will all speak the same language, or maybe languages, I don't know. Uh, pure speech, whatever that means in Zechariah 3 9, that's what we're going to be speaking, right? Okay. <clears throat> that's a unique event, though. Scholars generally find that incident is unique. So generally speaking, that's not a benefit of speaking in tongues. It's just like a one-time kind of sign that happened at Pentecost. Okay. I do think that there's a second layer to this. Um, what, in what sense, in other words, does normal speaking in tongues anticipate the kingdom? 
I would say that because it is defined in the Bible as excellent prayer or beautiful prayer, beautiful praise, excellent praise, it is spirit-led utterance to God. And therefore, what I think we can draw from that is that it anticipates a time when we will have a closer, more perfect communion with God in the kingdom. That that's, that's the taste of the kingdom we get with speaking in tongues and, and praising in tongues is this closer, is anticipation of this more close, perfect communion that we'll have with God when his presence comes down to earth. And we experience that in the fullness in the kingdom. It was a great question, though. Uh, Number 25, what if we are wrong about how we do tongues? Like, what if what we do right now isn't what they actually did in the New Testament church? Here's my answer. I agree. I mean, I think... We cannot be 100% sure that what we are doing is the exact same thing that they did. Now, I'm going to give you some things in my, my private prayer life. You know, I've, I've experienced many positive benefits from tongues in my private prayer life. I know of others who have experienced miraculous instances of tongues, uh, either being in a language that was someone knew. I've heard of an incident uh, where someone spoke in tongues and interpreted, and it's like sort of sang in tongues in the meeting, and it was like a beautiful melody, a beautiful melody. And people in the audience, some that were medic, you know, musically trained, could recognize that it was like a perfect, a perfect melody. It was like God-given song, basically. Um, so, you know, what, what the point I'm trying to, to make with all this is that there are genuine tongues. <laughs> there are genuine uh, aspects of this. Even if we can't say with 100% certainty that it is what they did in the apostolic period, we can still say that God is inspiring these things, that God is um, that God is granting these things, because that's really the only explanation for some of these miraculous things that people have talked about with tongues. Um, so, having said that too, I want to point out that those who speak in tongues are also actively seeking God in faith. And as an aside, I just want to be clear, I'm not saying that those who don't speak in tongues are not actively seeking God in faith in other ways. I'm just pointing out that those who desire tongues, they're seeking God in a spiritual way. And God, how does God respond to that? Well, I think God rewards those who seek him by showing him his, uh, showing them his power. So, you know, I cannot be 100% sure that what we are doing is exactly what the people did in the New Testament time. In fact, I'm 100% sure that they made mistakes in the New Testament Apostolic Church, Church of Corinth. And, you know, look, we're going to make mistakes too. I'm 100% sure that both those things are true. Uh, But I don't think we can stop the pursuit of God simply out of the fear of making mistakes. God knows our hearts. He remembers our frame. And I think we can have great peace in that. Final question, number 26. What do we do with the fact that we likely got this wrong before, that we may have hurt people in the process, and that we could be wrong again? I think it's a wonderful question. And I think my answer begins with the fact that we all must remain humble and meek in our walk as a Christian, in our entire walk. Um, You know, this question is applying to tongues here, but it could apply to anything that we do in the Christian walk. Um, getting things wrong, it just happens in part of our Christian walk. Um, now, I do think if we decide as a community to change the way that we view tongues, and obviously, I believe we should, okay? 
then I think I think it wise for us to offer some sort of public apology, um, some sort of public recognition of how we how we view things now. Um, you know, I, I believe strongly that we want to be transparent, we want to be open, we want to be honest, uh, we want to shine the light in darkness. Uh, we don't want to hide when things aren't the best. We don't want to, um, you know, hide things that are going wrong. We want to be open. We want to show people what it looks like when grace gets messy and when people who believe different things come together and follow Jesus together regardless of their differences. And so I think that that ethos, that, that understanding of Christian living, does suggest some sort of public apology. Um, we can discuss that in more detail. But I think that the obvious answer, regardless of how public the apology is, is an ongoing humility on this subject and on, obviously, every other subject as well. And I think that that's really what we at Compass pride ourselves on, is about being open, being transparent, being honest, handling things head on, not doing things in the dark, not doing things secretly. You know, we want to do everything above board and not give place to the devil in that. So um, that's how I would answer that, that, you know, if, if there are people that we have hurt, that we can seek out specific conversations with them. And even if they disagree with where we're going with it now, at least we can have that conversation and they can understand our heart. We can understand their heart. Um, and then it, it can be full, full sharing regardless of our differences. Um, so that's, that's what I think about that. And so just to conclude, I know this is a very long uh, teaching with the Q&A at the end especially. So I thank you for reaching the end. And if you did reach the end here, I again want to emphasize that I'm, I'm encouraged that we're having this conversation. I do want it to be a conversation. I know it's starting with a series of teachings, but I do want feedback. I do want pushback. Um, if people think that I've been lax or if I'm uh, not proving everything to the level that, that people expect. You know, I want to hear that. I want to hear those comments. Um, if I have, you know, said something that was wrong or hurtful, um, please come to me, talk to me about it. Um, I want to know more about uh, the different views that people have, but I do at the same time want to reiterate that, you know, the Bible is where we place our guideposts and then uh, where the Bible doesn't speak, we don't speak. And um, so if people want to come back and, and want to challenge what I've taught, I, I do encourage that. But I will be moved by scripture. I'm not going to be moved by opinion. We're not going to be moved by um, fear. We're not going to be moved by any other emotions. Uh, we're going to be swayed by what the Bible says. And then, like, I, like I've said before, and I'll say it again here at the very end, but the Bible does not provide a systematic theology of gifts. It just provides us with guideposts. And so we do the best with what God has given us. We believe that, you know, the Bible is sufficient, um, but it does not answer every question that we have. And so um, that's the situation we find ourselves in. So we, we, we do the best we can in community. And I am promising to you that I will submit myself to you if you have a better way of, of interpreting the text. I am I'm all ears, and this is not, for me, a, an issue of pride. It is, for me, an issue that I care about deeply uh, that we as a community can work work forward and move forward as unified as possible on it um, to keep to keep peace and to make the the compass environment as 
as entreating, as, a, as encouraging as it can be, especially for outsiders. Um, so all I have to say, I love you all. I respect you all. And I look forward to your feedback. So God bless you all.